Welcome to Our Jewish Roots with insightful Bible teaching by Dr. Jeffrey Seif. This week, we look at Paul's letters to the Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians as we follow in the footsteps of the rabbi from Tarsus. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm David Hart. I'm Kirsten Hart. And I am Jeffrey Seif. And this is Paul here. We're taking a look at him in this series. He says something to the Colossians that's striking to me in verse 10 of the first chapter. He wants his hearers to walk in a manner worthy of God, to please him, to bear fruit and grow. How's that for someone caring and sharing? That's good. Those are, those are some good foundations. Those are foundations and what we should see from someone. Yes, I hope that what I do and what we do contributes to that growing and glowing at the end of the day. That's what it's all about. Very much. Dr. Seif is on location in Ephesus. Let's go there right now for his teaching. Choshech, it's the Hebrew word for darkness. Or is the Hebrew word for light. There's a concept coming out of darkness into the light. In the modern world, people understand themselves to be enlightened. And in the ancient world, in Ephesus particularly, people thought the light shined bright. Coming to you from Ephesus now, a great city in what was once Asia Minor, now modern Turkey. Ephesus, one of the four main cities of the Roman Empire with Antioch to the east, with Alexandria south and west, and with Rome itself, one of the cities, one of the great cities. Today you can come here and our tours come here annually to look at the great Cardo, the remnants of the marketplace, the library, the, 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 the temple that once stood here, not so great in my opinion, but I'm a little biased now, aren't I? The theater that would seat in the vicinity of 24,000 individuals, Ephesus, a home to hundreds of thousands who were proud to be here. Paul loved Ephesus. I want you to open up your Bibles, if you will, and I want you to see how he tells the Ephesians, both Jews and non-Jews alike, that God has built a new house He says in chapter 2 that a new house has been built and Jews and Gentiles alike as equals are pillars in the new house and brethren and friends in the new economy. He uh, says in chapter 2 verse 1 that individuals that were dead in their sins and trespasses were made alive in the Messiah. The word to sin 
etymologically in the Hebrew Bible comes from a word uh, to stray, to, to, to miss the mark. It's like an arrow, you shoot for the target, but it varies off. They're individuals that miss the mark in life, they sin. Particularly, he says in verse 2 that they walked according to the course of this world. And he goes on to denote them living uh, in verse 3, in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh. By the way, here in this home in Ephesus, I needed to be careful where we put the camera, in the room adjacent to this one, uh, you would think you were in a gallery in Hugh Hefner's mansion in California, to tell you the truth. It looks like a play. I mean, I, didn't, I was embarrassed to go in there to tell you the God's honest truth. Well, he says to the Ephesians here who celebrated sexuality, he said, listen, uh, you want to come into the God of Israel. We need to learn a little bit about holiness. We need to say no to vice and yes to virtue. That uh, individuals that were living in the darkness, that is fulfilling sins in the darkness, needed to come into the light and begin to then walk in the light. He says here, in verse 14, the Jews and non-Jews that were alienated one from another now have peace by God who's broken down the wall of, of a partition and abolished the enmity in verse 15 in order in verse 16 to then reconcile them one to another. He goes on in verse 19 to underscore that individuals who have accepted Yeshua are members of the household of God. Paul loved the concept of the house. In fact, we're in a beautiful house in Ephesus right now, lots of room. In fact, Roman culture made room for a lot of people in their house. It was very uh, synchronistic. There were a lot of different kinds of people that were able to get citizenship in the house. And the Romans cast a vision for a society of equals if you became a citizen. Here we're in a beautiful house of a Roman citizen of a bygone era. But what's interesting about this house is that there was water running to the house. The Romans were, were fantastic in their innovations. They learned to manage water. They were very, very modern. Tragically, however, the Romans had a vision for community and unity, but they didn't have living water going to their house. See, that water is available. The Mayim Chaim, that kind of water we, come, uh, we get from the uh, Messiah Yeshua from Jesus. And Paul told that story. And the way individuals get watered is they have to turn, they have to repent. The Hebrew word for repentance, in fact, is the word teshuva. It means to turn. It means to change your direction. The Greek uh, word for repent is metanoia. It comes from meta, which means change, and noia, or gnosis, mind. Change your mind. Change your direction. Change your mind. In the biblical vision, individuals are living the wrong way, and individuals must need change. Paul writes to individuals in Ephesus who, in fact, have changed, and he reminds them of the people they ought to be, no longer strangers or foreigners, but now like sons and daughters living in the house. And what does that mean? If you look in chapter 5, verse 1 and on, he uh, moralizes as rabbis are given to do. He talks here in lists. He talks about vice, and he talks about virtue. He notes in verse 1, be imitators of God. In verse 2, walk in love as the Mashiach, as the Messiah loved us. In verse 3, he goes, fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, must needs be eschewed as with filthiness and foolish talking and so forth. He advocates for comportment that people that walk the walk, talk the talk, and they live right. And he likewise then, after noting the list of vices, he then underscores the importance of virtue. Those who previously walked in darkness, in verse 8, must needs walk in the light, and so forth. Paul has this vision 
of uh, putting off vice and living by virtue. But that vision isn't unique to him. What's unique is that he's talking to non-Jews about it, to tell you the truth. That vision comes from the Jewish world. Jews understood uh, individuals uh, anthropologically to have something of a dilemma. Uh, the human condition was assaulted on two sides. There was Yetzer Hara, from Ra'a in Hebrew, which means evil. Yetzer Hara means the evil inclination. Yetzer Hatov is the good inclination. Individuals have a struggle between vice and virtue, between uh, flesh and spirit. Uh, to use the Pauline paradigm here, individuals that are members of the house of God must needs walk in the spirit, and he underscores that here. And it's so important, by the way, the message that he told the Ephesians: You used to live in sin, but now you've come out of the you know you've, you've come out of the countryside into the house. If you're going to live in the house, act like a child that belongs to the house. It's a great story, and the rabbi from Tarsus wrote about it to the Ephesians some two thousand years ago. One step at a time. That's what they say. It's the way life ought to be lived, just one step at a time. Judaism sages picked up on that. Uh, the religious life, the way to live it and walk it, is called chalacha from the verb chalak, which means to walk. Paul took a lot of steps, didn't he? This rabbi from Tarsus, Shaul, his steps took him to a lot of places. Most recently, he wound up in Caesarea Maritime. He was in prison there, actually. It was uh, the tail end of his missionary journey. He made his way to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem. He loved Jerusalem. The apostle to the Gentiles had a heart for the Jews, and trouble you know, broke out in River City, and he wound up getting arrested. From Caesarea Maritime, he appealed to Rome. And inasmuch as at various times he had to get his own voyage, this time it was provided for him courtesy of the empire. He makes his way to Rome, and there he's imprisoned. You know, a lot of times people that are in prison, their minds are just all absorbed in their own problems. But Paul, he wasn't just absorbed in his own problems. He thought of the world beyond him. And what does he do? He writes letters. He writes letters to those faraway places. He's looking to reach out and bring other people into his world through mail. Not only that, Luke tells us in Acts that when he's imprisoned, he's able to get some word out, and, and the city of Rome's Jewish leaders come to him, and Paul says, listen, there's been a big misunderstanding here because I have done nothing against the teaching, against the traditions of our fathers. I'm a Jew among Jews. I believe the Messiah has come true, but he never understood that as making him non-Jewish or offending the cultural mores that go along with being Jewish. Paul was in a very conciliatory mood when he dealt with the Romans. He was also in a very conciliatory mood when he picked up his pen, as evidenced by some of the letters that he wrote. There, from his imprisonment, he wrote to a church that met in a rich man's house, comparable to this one right here in Asia, from where I'm speaking from today. This fellow uh, had a house group that met there in Colosseum. This was a city uh, you know, some miles due east of Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the major cities in the uh, Roman Empire. Paul was an urban planter. He would establish congregations in big cities, and then satellites would spring out. Well, here in Rome, he's writing to one of those satellites in Colosseum. 
There's a, a very well-to-do individual named Philemon, a slave owner, in fact, who's come to faith. And faith came into his heart, and his circumstances were reorganized. Paul, when he wrote to the Colosseans in general, and when he wrote to Philemon in particular, he addressed the theme of reconciliation. He was interested in estranged parties coming together. First, individuals that are estranged from God. Secondly, individuals that are estranged one from another. I want you to open your Bibles, please, to Colossians. You'll see it there in chapter 1, picking up in verse 19. What does this rabbi from Tarsus say? He says, it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. He has just said that this Yeshua, this Messiah Jesus, is all things. And the Greek here is pleroma, or the fullness. This Jesus is very potent, very powerful. In him, this fullness dwells in verse 20. And by him then, he says, and this is the good news, he says, by him he can reconcile all things to himself. That is, individuals that are estranged from God can be brought near to God through the person of Jesus. Individuals that are estranged one from another can do much the same. He says in verse 21, And you who once were alienated in your mind by wicked works, he now has reconciled. I learn about reconciliation from different tutors. A marriage, by the way, has tutored me just a little bit. I've learned that my, my wife and I are at odds with each other. The fundamental question isn't, who's going to win the argument, who's most profound in their diatribe. What brings about peace is when someone decides to stop fighting. When someone is in the conciliatory mood and takes that posture, it has a way of de-escalating what otherwise tends simply to escalate up. Marriage has taught me about uh, reconciliation. So has ministry. So has the rabbi from Tarsus. If you look in uh, Colossians chapter 3, he picks up on the theme. He says here, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, he says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. There's a, a Jewish expression, kili alem chasto, that his, his, his mercies endure forever. And inasmuch as God in the Hebrew Bible is represented as being given toward mercy, toward compassion, rachmanun, inasmuch as he's oriented that way. The argument is that those of us that want to orient ourselves that way would do well to follow that example. And this, of course, is what Paul is advocating for when he goes on to say that we ought to bear with one another and be forgiving one to another. The word forgiving is interesting. It means that we are for giving. Individuals are on the take. People go through life with a closed hand, but to be forgiving invests uh, a kind of energy in one's disposition where we're minded to give individuals a break. It's hard to be forgiving towards someone if they're at war with us. Sometimes circumstances prevail upon us and we have to take a defensive posture. I knew that as a career in a police officer. Sometimes you have to engage and bring justice to bear. So I don't begrudge individuals that need to get redressed for their grievance, but still, better it is that we're the kind of individual that's minded for as much as possible to be gracious. He says here in verse 14 that above all things we do well to put on love. The verb in Hebrew, love, ahav. Uh, we encounter this affectionately. We shall love the Lord our God. That's not just sentiment. 
Um, the, we are sentient being, we have feelings, but the verb love means to do good on behalf of. And, and, and Paul advocates when he writes to the church in general that they do well to be thus minded. But not just that. Apparently when he wrote the Colossian church, uh, the postman delivered more than one letter because at the same time Philemon got a personal letter and Philemon was the rich guy. He was really the homeowner there. Apparently when Paul was incarcerated in Rome, he had developed an acquaintance with a fellow named Onesimus, who was a runaway slave. And what happens is uh, he winds up leading Onesimus to the Lord. He's going to accept Jesus. And what he's going to do that's striking, that's fascinating, is he's going to advocate that this fellow Philemon uh, take back the runaway slave and forgive him. It's fascinating. In the ancient world, slaves were considered as utilities. They were just articulate beasts by Roman laws. They had no rights whatsoever. You know, a master could crucify a slave. It meant nothing. They, had, they were just the property of their owner. It's fascinating here. Onesimus offended Philemon. Philemon, however, came to faith in Jesus. And so did Onesimus, interestingly. And what happens is Paul then not only writes to the church at Colossae, but he sends Philemon back with the uh, letter and he says, listen, I want you to forgive this guy. You know, the gospel is profound the way that lives can be transformed and the newness of life brings newness of behaviors, does it not? Such is the teaching of the famous rabbi from Tarsus. Our resource this week, the Hebrew Names of God cards. This collection includes 12 vibrant high-quality art cards, each with Old and New Testament connections on the back, with scripture and beautifully written devotionals. These art cards can be used for personal reflection, group discussion, or as a beautiful gift for your friend or pastor. For this resource and more, call 1-800-WONDERS or visit us at levitt.com. Thirteen years ago, I walked with Paul through the ancient world. That's when we did the series you're viewing. That, as I'd said, we did 13 years ago. But now we're walking in the modern world together and considering the Christian implications for all of that. Boy, I'd love to share it with you. A problem we have in a program such as this, it takes a while to turn around the programs. I'm dropping this into an older program to let you know that you can pivot and follow us on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook. We endeavor to be very contemporary and bring you a fresh word that speaks to the moment, that is insightful, that's spiritual, that looks at the good news through the eyes of the Jews. Do check us out and thanks for going with us on the journey. Paul came to Rome as a courtesy of the state. He had appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he came here in Rome. You'll see some sites behind me. One is an arch of Constantine, came a bit later. The Forum is in close proximity, as is the Great Colosseum behind, which came a little later as well. But this is Rome, and when Paul was here initially, he came here, as I said, he was transported courtesy of Rome by a centurion. He was under house arrest, and it's from here where he wrote uh, a few epistles. He wrote to the Ephesians, he wrote to the Colossians, he wrote a personal letter to Philemon, and then he wrote a document called the Philippians, which is arguably 
the friendliest of Paul's letter. That's not to say he was a mean sort, but it seems that when he wrote the others, he was disconcerted about one thing or another, but the Philippian correspondence was a thank you letter. Paul was uh, gleaming with optimism in the letter too. He even mentions that the Praetorian Guard uh, was aware of his circumstances, that God was getting glory too as the gospel was spreading out amongst the Praetorians here in Rome. Paul was chained, but he really wasn't chained in the sense he was free as a bird and he gives voice to his faith and his hope and his love in the Philippians document, a thank you letter to those at Philippi. Why? Because they were unyielding in their support for Paul through the whole tenure of his ministry. Sometimes enthusiasm and support can wax and wane, but the Philippians were resolute in their standing behind Paul and he writes a thank you letter. Behind me is a tribute to a man who, by dint of determination, he marshaled forces, he conquered a foe and got the better of an empire as a result of his so doing. When Paul wrote from Rome years before that, he spoke about another kind of leadership, a servant leader, and in the Philippian document, he spelled it out so beautifully in talking about Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but he emptied himself and he took on the form of a servant and was found in the likeness of men. So you have a story in Jesus who was great and splendid and magnificent in a previous existence, but he came down here to serve. And I love the juxtaposition here in Rome of the image of a man who came to conquer. Jesus conquered the world by love, not by the sword. Do you know the word ministry comes from the word minus, which means less than. That is, to count others more worthy than ourselves. And the rabbi from Tarsus placed a premium, on that, a premium on that when he wrote the Philippians, in part because they were just that. That is, they were given to service rather than simply being served. The Philippians were an interesting group. They were composed of retired military personnel. They retired out of the Roman military, and they were in a tax-exempt city in Philippi. They knew what it was to be of service to, to go the distance because they did that in the course of their own military careers. But particularly, Paul goes on to say in the second chapter of Philippians that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that would have been a scandal to the Romans here. This sort of death was reserved for criminals, for the condemned, uh, not for citizens, not for people of renown, certainly not for the majestic sorts. But nevertheless, this king came and became a man, a humble man, and he died on a cross. But the net result of it all, according to Paul, is that because of his service, because of his death on the cross, the Lord exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which was above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I find it interesting that we males of the species, perhaps for reasons that are testosterone driven, were bent on conquest and power and strength. But Jesus was a man, but he wasn't just man, he was God in man form. And what happens is he was both God and man. What does he do? He comes and he humbles himself and he serves with a net result that more people bow the knee to Jesus than ever have to Constantine the Great who's commemorated with this tribute behind me. There's a way that love and service goes further than power and might. Caesar was an extremely powerful man, but as the case with powerful men, they don't live forever. 
off to my right, you can't see it, uh, the remains of where the Senate convened. Directly behind me uh, is the remains of uh, the temple that was built atop the place which Julius Caesar's body was burned after he was executed when uh, you know, he did business with the Senate and he was betrayed by some friends, and it's a very famous event. When I think of the death of a great, I'm reminded of Jesus, who's greater than Caesar, but he came to his power in another way. And here as we have the tribute to Caesar behind me, but a ruin, we have the church the world over today that attests to the fact that there's power and love. Jesus, who died a criminal's death at the hand of the Romans, has gone on to effect to have the greatest name in the world, that people know him better than they do all these long forgotten Caesars. Paul wanted to underscore the importance of service, and this he did when he wrote the Philippians. And as we follow in the footsteps of the rabbi from Tarsus and consider what he had to say, we do well to remember the message. That is, that the way to become great is to be a servant of all. Paul's letters are really for us. They're timeless. It's all about forgiveness, repentance, back in the day, but also for us. Yes, and thankfulness, too, which undergirds... We forget that one. <laughs> ...the Philippian correspondence, that's right. But speaking of forgetting and not forgetting, Paul is so appreciative that these Philippians never forgot him. What do you think of this saying, uh, one old friend's better than 20 new ones? Oh, one tried and true one is good. You just hold on. I appreciate all tried new friends true. I can get, but these are old friends of Paul. He says as much at the beginning, they shared with them from the first day even until now. A lot of people abandoned Paul, but these Philippians stuck with him, and this letter, the overall ethos of it is thankfulness for these good friends. Would that we had more of that kind of commitment going. They stuck with him, but I think he also surrounded himself with people like like we've heard about in these teachings. Yeah, he did, and some of them left him, too. You know, he began the journey with Barnabas, and they had a church split. Uh, didn't last uh, to the second missionary journey, so-called. And, uh, you know, people can be trippy. You know, people have different ideas, even good people. But these people uh, sent aid. He says at the end of the, the letter time and time again, and I get into that in my teaching. One old friend, one new friend, hey, listen, thank God for friends at the end of the day. You know, fellowship isn't just a bunch of guys getting together and chatting. It's a bunch of fellows in the same ship rowing together. And thank you for putting your oars in the water and helping us get downstream. I mention that because we've gone against some difficult headwinds. It's like that in ministry when some people die, the founder dies, we move on through time and circumstance. And thank you for time and time again rendering aid, not just to help us, but to advance the gospel through what we do. And through the miracle that is network television, we just get all over the world. Thank you. You put a dollar into this house with a donation, it travels. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to jump on the thank you wagon also, if I may. And uh, Paul was thankful for the Philippians that were there through all kinds of changes. And all of you have been there with us. And we, again, I know you said thanks. I want to say thank you. Paul was had a, wrote a whole letter of thankfulness. And if we just can take a minute of your day and thank you for knowing our heart and our vision and is to get the good news across to the world, just like Paul did. Really is a miracle, Paul's life. We have one more week in this series. We would love for you to join us next week. Next week it is, and as you go now, 
Shalom, Shalom, Yerushalayim. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Join us right now for additional content that is only available on our social media sites, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Visit our website, levitt.com, for the current and past programs, the television schedule, tour information, and our free monthly newsletter, which is full of insightful articles and news commentary. View it online, or we can ship it directly to your mailbox every month. Also on our website is the online store. There, you can order this week's resource, or you can always give us a call at 1-800-WONDERS. Your donations to Our Jewish Roots help us to support these organizations as they bless Israel. Please remember we depend on tax-deductible donations from viewers like you. This has been a paid program brought to you by Zola Levitt Ministry.